Welcome to the 58th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're taking a little bit of a tangent. We're talking about an XKCD comic titled The Sandbox Cycle. There's a link in the show notes for it. It is... It's one of those comics that grabs an idea so perfectly that we just had to kind of talk about it a little bit and unpack it in, in the realm of operations. So the the general theory for this is you have a bunch of people who say, hey, we have this new thing that makes it really easy to communicate and have all of our things talk to each other. And then, oh crap. We have these resources. Wouldn't it be really great if they could talk to each other really easily and, hey, there's this new technology. And then, oh no, there's... Having all these connections open means there's security bugs we didn't think about, and there's all these, these unintended, unintended consequences. Oh my gosh, what do you mean there's security issues and unintended consequences? We'll have to find something to isolate and containerize our, our, our new resources. Then, don't you wish these resources could easily communicate with each other? I found this new technology. And this seems to happen over and over and over again, and not just in... The, the sandbox cycle for software development, but in operations work in general. This this pattern is so prevalent. The reason this speaks to me is because I see the constant reinventing and the constant resolving of the same problems over and over and over again as, well, something that pays the bills. Um, but also we we're continually reinventing what we already have we're not making a lot of forward progress one of the the easy examples of this for me is watching the the preferred method for api communication between systems evolve over the years there was soap rpc xml and oh yeah everybody used xml rpc for at least 30 seconds and then no 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 we're we're going to use rss instead because it's better and it's easier to implement and it's simpler and it's things and it's whatever. I did XML RPC over Jabber at one point. Damn. What's the Jabber protocol again? Oh, my brain. XMPP. Not that that's useful anymore. Thanks, Google. <laughs> and then everybody decided, oh, we're going to move off of RSS and SOAP XML and all the other things. We're going to move everything to REST APIs. It's like, okay, guys, you, you just keep on moving moving these pieces around. You haven't changed fundamentally what you're doing, at least from the operations perspective. I'm sure on the programming side, there's there's a huge world of difference between having an XML object and having a, a REST object call that you're making. But still, it's these things keep on getting moved. And then, oh, well, we, have to re, we have to refigure security. Oh, we have to refigure this. Oh, we have to work on these other pieces again. And, and REST it, is kind of interesting for me because it's not a standard. It's kind of agreement that hey we've got you know http 11 http 2 now we've got some verbs that go along with that we've got plenty of headers and back and forth data we can build apis off of that and there's no real rest standard which means there's a lot of very different implementations of the same thing but everything's a an http endpoint now another one of the examples that, that comes to mind for the whole cycle the sandboxing cycle is, and this is kind of a stretch, but bear with me. In the before time, we had mainframes, and then we had microcomputer, or then we had personal computers, 
and then we had Citrix, and then we had laptops, and then we had the cloud, and now we have phones. And hey, we you forgot going, thin clients. Oh God, thin clients. Yeah, we, but we keep on moving back and forth between. Oh, we should centralize all of our resources because it's easier to manage a centralized resource and buy big, big honking things for the center. And then, but people really want stuff on their desktop because it makes it easier and more powerful. And oh no, 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 we we should we should reaggregate all this stuff because it makes it easier to deploy deploy software. And then no, no, people want stuff on their laps like when they're flying on an airplane and centralized versus distributed over and over again and it keeps happening um i've seen this in organizational cycles as well as technology things where you have a a centralized computing office for a large organization and then as they fail in their mission the the nodes of the of the graph start picking up power because they need to help their users with things and then once the central organization recovers from whatever was ailing them they start gathering power again because the the nodes of the graph don't want to do all the work, and they they start passing stuff. Wouldn't it be great if we had a central organization that took care of some of these basic use cases for us? Yeah, and it, it's back and forth. It's ebb and flow, and it just keeps on happening. And this is not dissimilar from programming with a monolith style application, which you want to break down into a service oriented architecture style application because it's too complex and you can't debug it. Now your SOA application is too complex and you can't debug it and you're trying to do some sort of distributed debugger. Um, and now you've stumbled across, you know, SOA version 2. It's all with its event-driven architecture. And once again, hey, building these systems is hard and complex and difficult to get right. Rephrasing the problem doesn't always make it easier. And in fact, it often makes it worse because you're, you're just moving the complexity around. Um, I've seen folks do the SOA or start working on the SOA style approach and then saying, okay, well, we still need centralized libraries for things. And it's like, yeah, you're just building a new monolith, but it's it's kind of hidden in this fact that like once once somebody upgrades one piece, like they upgrade a Kafka connection client somewhere in the stack – now that ripples out to everybody else. Now you, everybody has to coordinate and pick it up and understand how that works and where that change came from and why that was there. And so you're building another monolith in your common libraries, even though each of the individual applications now has to suffer through restarts and all the other all, all the other pieces of complexity you've pushed out to them. And, and there's some really cool individual specific aspects to that. Um, hey, I do metrics a lot. If you've listened to this podcast, you know. And if you're building an SOA-style application, it's really great if you all use the same metrics library, if you export the same sort of standard metrics. Like, if you call your uh, REST API uh, latency metric, you know, the same thing, and measure it the same way. So no matter which SOA service you look at, you can instantly say, hey, this is my HTTP latency duration, and I can instantly start understanding how that app may be misbehaving or not. And those aspects get really powerful, but that spreads out into, you know, Zookeeper for controlling state, uh, Kafka for messaging back and forth, and you have this entire monolith of of toolkits that you use to for your SOA applications to actually talk to each other. At what point does it become the monolith again? And then back on the security front, most people who deploy Kafka and Zookeeper and MQ and those kinds of things don't don't deploy it initially with security in mind. And so they say, oh, we'll, just, we'll have a, a publishing broker so we can figure out what's going on and let people consume from it. 
And then suddenly people start consuming from it. And you're like, oh crap, people are reading data they're not supposed to read. It's like, well, yeah, you, you put it into an open, unauthenticated broker. What do you, what do you expect? And so this These keeps tools back and forth. really solve very specific problems really succinctly and really well. And consistency algorithms are hard to get right. And using a tool like Zookeeper can really help. But yeah, everywhere I've seen Zookeeper used in my recent experience, there's not even a password on the service. So if you've got open network access, have fun. And of course, the response to that seems to be, oh, well, we'll just have firewall rules or different projects or some other construct we can overlay on top of TLS security, either, mutual yeah, authentication, either, either the network topology or over organizational structure or something. And so we're going to start building these little sandboxes of, okay, well, you have your own little metric stack or your own little logging stack or your own little whatever it is. But then we're back into the problem of, so how do you get all of the metrics back into the same endpoint so Grafana can see them everywhere? How do you get all of your log service in the same place? How do you synchronize writes to some kind of shared state object? Oh, well, now we have to figure out ways to poke all these holes. And wouldn't it be nice if things could just talk to each other easily? And specifically, one of the projects I'm working on, folks have become accustomed to running their metrics and monitoring Prometheus stack within their service, which is isolated in its own project space. And depending on how your isolation primitives work, if you need to discover all of those Prometheus instances to do something useful with them, like shove them through a single Grafana instance, build a single point of entry for all of your metrics, how do you iterate through that and discover all of those those isolation isolated projects um this is kind of how um uh, the google compute platform works with its project structure and yeah you're actually creating more problems by having that prometheus node as part of someone else's stack than you actually end up solving for for large large systems this reminds me in a way of the early days of doing virtual machines when VMware was kind of a new hotness before EMC had even bought them. And everybody was all excited about, oh, we'll have we'll have virtual machines. We'll have our own little things. We'll have our, our own OSs. And and then they would call up and say, hey, how, how does this work? And how do I how do I fix this thing? And you're like, well, well, when it was on the shared service, when you were on the big database server that everybody else was using, we did everything centrally. But now that you're running your own VM, I have no idea what you've done to it. And it took a lot of learning and a lot of patterning to go, oh, well, we really can't just roll out willy-nilly VMs to anybody who wants them. There needs to be some kind of support structure in place. Um, and that's kind of, to me, where the version control, or not version control, to me, that's where the configuration management stuff came from. Um, in my career, Puppet wasn't really used until suddenly it was like, oh, crap, we have to manage VMs for people. And we have to have some kind of way to coordinate baselines across all kinds of machines. Oh, Puppet does that job really, really well. And that was my introduction, really, to configuration management to solve yeah, suddenly you have hundreds of machines instead of tens yeah and it's easy to multiply machines instead of taking weeks to get new boxes in it was oh you spin up another couple of machines today well crap how do you manage that how do you how, do, how does the organization react to that kind of thing so it's one of those it's one of those cycles where yeah because suddenly it's easy to build lots of new things and they're all effectively sandboxed from each other 
oh crap, we have to now do this thing. And then fast forward many, far too many years. And I see the same thing happening with Docker. Oh, in fact, you're running Docker probably in VMs. And you're probably running, hey, let's say some some Java or otherwise sandbox language inside your Docker container that's setting up its own security sandbox to control uh, what that what that bytecode can execute. And then what happens when your Java VM, say Elasticsearch, really wants to reach out and set a couple of memory settings on the host, but the Docker environment doesn't want to let it do that, and so you then have to go through and figure all the plumbing in between the two because they don't actually talk to each other. I digress. <laughs> You've never had that problem, have you, Brendan? No, not not two weeks ago, no. Not two weeks ago. You know, my most pet peeve sandboxing problem is printing. <laughs> printing is, is printing. Terrible. Printing has always been terrible. It's it's always been grunt work. It's always been annoying controlling all those robots everywhere. But over the years, we've developed protocols like PostScript and CUPS and LPD and ways to manage printers in large networks with hundreds or thousands of printers managed centrally and hell, even charging quota for it. And so we've solved this problem of how do you plug in a user's laptop, an arbitrary device, and print to the printing system without having to install some crazy driver for every printer you might ever want to print to. And we mean solved it in the 70s. And hey, look at your iPhone that's just reinvented how to solve that problem again and is doing it super poorly. Yeah. The thing that makes me scream most about my iPhone is trying to print something from it. I never even bothered with my iPhone until we got a new laser printer at the house that had an air print server built into it. And this one actually worked. I was like, oh, okay. Now I need to retrain myself that I can use the print functionality instead of always just ignoring it because it didn't work before. Have you ever printed from a Chromebook? I have never even tried. <sighs> Recently, they have some really bad support for LPD and IPPQs, which is very new. It's always been a, uh, there has to be a Google print server running somewhere on your network, which is usually another version of Chrome running on another machine that's on and connected to a printer. And yeah, it's still pretty rough. My my lovely printer, with its magic Google printing support, just seems to magically unregister itself every couple of weeks. So every time you go to print, it doesn't work. That's super frustrating. Why does printing have to be so horrible your iphone is way powerful to produce and manage postscript it's been a solved problem so speaking of chromebooks another one of these sandboxes that drives me absolutely insane is web browsers have become their own operating system and security nightmare and process manager and everything else and then oh we're gonna we're gonna sandbox between tabs and then the memory footprint of the browser starts exploding because each of the tabs has its own runtime and its own JVM and its own this and its own that. And I just think that, they put their, that Google's putting print servers into the proxy yes. Chrome. Wow. Oh, 
<laughs> it's just abuse. And I'm not saying that Apple is special in any way. Apple has all kinds of other crazy crap they do in their browsers. And Firefox keeps on getting hit by, oh, we're going to install some kind of funded plugin for Mr. Robot or whatever and pissing off the security communities. How is this so ridiculously bad? I would have never imagined that the web browser becomes the new programming platform, you know, back in the 90s. And I look backwards at that and, you know, I think, well, why wouldn't I have? But the the fact that everyone can run a Linux-based laptop, phone, desktop, and no one can actually care because you're running a browser on top of it that's the same browser everybody else in the world uses and the browser re-implements all of your OS features anyway so you no longer worry about hey this crazy application I want to use doesn't support you know uh, running on top of X no your crazy application instead has several other JavaScript security vulnerabilities (laughs) or cross-site scripting or SSL, sorry, TLS, or, or, or. There's there's always more. Always more. So how do you, how do you look at this problem from a different angle? How do you situate yourself in a place where you can recognize, hey, we're starting to you know, reinvent the wheel here. What's wrong with the old wheel and how can we fix things rather than then rebuild things. And I think really a foundational part of that is for folks need to learn programming languages. If you don't know one, you should be learning one. And for folks that uh, have good programming experience under their belt, I would frankly suggest that folks go learn an older programming language. Um, like C, I'd like to say Pascal, but there's no use for Pascal anymore. Um, even understanding some basics of why Fortran and COBOL still exist today. I truly don't want to program in either. But there's some really interesting features that Fortran and COBOL encapsulate that is why they still live and torment us to this day. Have you done some basic assembly before? Don't do Intel assembly. Try 8800 assembly. But actually learning more about the inner workings of how a computer actually works and moves data around, um, even at a very basic level, gives you a very new perspective of of how an SOA-style application with all its mini connections actually works and what the the trade-offs are. Brendan, come up with a good one. Well, I'm a huge proponent of learning C. Um, and the the practical reason for this is the Arduino platform runs C. And so if you want to control... That's it, a freaking excellent idea. Go buy yourself an Arduino, learn some C. And if you grab one like one of the Teensies, they're not technically an Arduino, but they are super fast and they have lots of hardware PWMs and they've got a bunch of other great things in it for manipulating physical circuits. So if you're trying to learn kind of the the basics of how and why these things work. Go pick up a couple of MOSFETs and some LEDs and an Arduino 
and learn how to wire the things together. So you can use a 3.3 volt signal to trigger a five volt LED and all the other pieces. And this will give you a better understanding of kind of the fundamental building blocks of why the pieces work together the way they do. I've never actually written assembly. Kind of scares me. I think I should have, but I feel a little old for that now. It's okay. But C is a really interesting language in the fact that, frankly, the universe was written in C. And as long as the universe exists, we'll have lots of C code around. Uh, so that is an excellent language to to know some basics in and understand how it works. And it's still directly useful in terms Today. of, even if you're working in you know, a, a modern web shop that is doing entirely, you know, Haskell or functional or whatever the hell the new thing is these days. If you're trying to do internet of things at home, you have to know some C. You really do. So it, it's, a, it's a useful programming paradigm to kind of pick up and understand. Like, go write a PID controller in C and not a, not a process ID, but a proportional integrative derivative loop controller in C to put on an Arduino to run, I don't know, the heating element for an espresso machine. Not that I've done that. Um, <laughs> and it teaches you a whole lot about math and kind of the underpinnings of all these things. It's great. What are other good signposts for for being able to identify this sandboxing cycle? There's so, always the fact that gaining a few more years of experience means you've seen previous sandbox cycles. So for me, there's another XKCD that really really jumps out and I'll put it in the show notes as well. And it's the one about competing standards. And anytime you find yourself in a place of saying, Hey, we should, we should set up a new standard. You probably are, are hitting some kind of wall of, okay, so you're going to go set up a new standard, but we already have 15 standards and or we already have 14 standards. And now we have 15 standards because we have your new one that we just added to the pile as well. Every time you, Oh, we're, we're going to get rid of puppet and we're going to, we're going to build something new. If you don't actually turn Puppet off at the end of the end of the process, you're now running Puppet and the thing that replaced it, and the thing that replaced it. And by the end of the day, management tools are really hard, and deceptively so. It's one of the things you learn learning working with Puppet is the the what do the Puppet folks call it the the trio of resources. There's files packages, and services. And as long as you can, you know, sort of work that trio of resources, you can control a lot on a server. But that's, that may be 80% of what you're doing, but it's that other 20% that that really become difficult, that really requires some in-depth thinking of use cases and corner cases and the edge factors and how you're going to navigate them. And I've seen I've seen people try to reinvent configuration management I don't know how many times because it's it's not an easy problem. Um but so many times I see people why can't we just focus on the, on these you know simple elements that we want to achieve and push forward with this new idea. And it doesn't take long before people start realizing that it's the other 20% that no one thought through that that's the hard part. 
And the, the typical pattern here is that at the end of the, as the age of the organization grows, at the end of the day, you have a mainframe running some part of HR, and then you have a bunch of Windows servers running another part of the system, and then you have a bunch of VMware servers running another big stack of the system, and then you have some stuff in AWS, and you have some stuff in GCP, and you have some some stuff in Lambda, and you can't turn any of it off because it's all production and critical, but nobody has the time or the capacity to shut any of the old stuff down. And so you keep on running all of the Fortran and all the COBOL, and you keep on running all the Windows domain controllers, and you keep on running all, all of the things forever. And to me, that's the big trap. That That's the sign that if if there is no end date in sight, if you're if you're just starting a new a new project, a new program, a new platform, a new whatever, but there is no exit plan for the old thing, you probably need to stop and think about why is there no exit plan for the old thing? Why are we only replacing part of it? And how do we make sure that we continue to move resources along so people will work on the new and interesting stuff and not have to stay around not not have to stay around and feed the old stuff because if you don't feed the old stuff you have systemic problems it's never fun to find yourself a administrator of dns for your local organization but the internet doesn't work without dns <laughs> a friend of mine who's a software developer who i've never actually worked with before but i would like to at some point called me a couple of years ago and started asking me really basic questions about DNS and um, MX records. I'm like, how does mail work? And I quickly realized that whoever whoever he was working for at the time had only hired software developers and they didn't have anybody who actually knew even the basics of ops. And he was sort of trying to stumble through, like, why isn't my mail going through? And it's like, yeah. Okay, let, let, let's go back to the basics. Let's figure this out. Let's move forward. So one of the things that that experience has taught me, has taught me about Linux, is that change in Linux is divergent. The more that things change, the more things there are to change in the future. And of course, that change is, is quite inevitable. So you find yourself at some point at a position, at a point where you want to be able to control change in your organization. You want to enable your developers working on your revenue generating project or uh, services, whatever that is, to do some cool work, to be able to innovate quickly and move fast. But the the OS or virtualization system or Docker containers that you're running underneath that to support that, you want some some guarantee of stability in that process. You don't want to be hopping from from one Docker container manager to another to another under the covers while also expecting your developers to be able to innovate quickly and move fast with new features. And it's it's that kernel of of being able to control change in your organizations that a lot of a lot of clients that I've worked with don't get yet and it's I guess it's something that only experience can really teach but it's it's that mark of uh, to me at least of who are the big players and who knows how to innovate and push forward their 
uh, their services and applications and, and projects. Well said. Please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm, or use at operations.fm on Twitter. And that wraps it up for the 58th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks, and good night. Docker!